Is narcolepsy something that we really need to think about if we do not practice sleep medicine? The answer may surprise you. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Bogan. Dr. Bogan is the President and Medical Director of SleepMed of South Carolina, Chairman and Chief Medical Officer of SleepMed Incorporated, Medical Director of Premier Health Systems Incorporated, and an Assistant Clinical Professor in the University of South Carolina's Medical School. He is certified by the American Boards of Sleep Medicine, Critical Care, Internal Medicine, and Pulmonary Diseases. Welcome to ReachMD. Leslie, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Bogan, now many physicians tune out, so to speak, uh, when the topic of narcolepsy is brought up, thinking that they'll never see a case. Is this reasonable? Well, I would say not, because for several reasons. One is sleepiness is pervasive. A lot of individuals are sleepy. Maybe as many as a third of us are sleepy at any one time. Narcolepsy is sort of ultimate sleepiness and, in fact, teaches us a lot about the effects of sleepiness. If we can understand narcolepsy and understand some of the the pathology or the pathophysiology, it helps us understand sleepiness in general. And thirdly, individuals with narcolepsy currently are not diagnosed. Most of the majority of them are not diagnosed, so there are lots of people wandering around out there that are sleepy, and quite frankly, the prevalence of narcolepsy may actually be higher than we expect. So just how common is narcolepsy? Well, the published literature says one in 2,000, but if you look at some recently published information where they did a series of nap studies during the day and actually took a general population measurement of how sleepy we are, anywhere from 3 to 7% of the population, depending upon gender and age, had excessive sleepiness as measured by the multiple sleep latency test. So sleepiness is pervasive. Well, it certainly got my attention when I read that even with the old numbers that narcolepsy is as common as multiple sclerosis. And we all have people with that in our practices. Absolutely. Well, you know, uh, the other is that I think this is the difficulty. If you think about a primary care practice, they have, depending upon the size of the practice, maybe 2,500 to 3,000 patients. So they have at least one narcolepsy patient in that practice. If you're a pulmonologist and you have 60,000, then you have more. Mm-hmm. Um, so depending upon your referral base and size of your practice, they, they are there. The other is that for every one narcolepsy patient, there are a group of other patients who have narcolepsy-like symptoms who are excessively sleepy. And oftentimes when patients come to us, they don't come to us and say, Doc, you know, I'm hypersomnolent. I have an abnormal Epworth sleepiness scale score, <laughs> they come in with other complaints. And typically the complaints are fatigue or cognitive changes or memory issues or mood changes or apathy or low motivation rather than just saying, Doc, I'm sleepy. So there really is no typical patient presentation? You'll, you'll see all those sorts of complaints? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one reason that it has narcolepsy itself has taught us so much. And in fact, our narcolepsy patients are are all very different. My, one of my best patients is a patient who came to me and says, Doc, I have insomnia. I wake up so much in the night. You've got to do something for me. He said, I, I wake up so many times. I never sleep. I dream all night long. And it was really fascinating. And when we studied this fellow, of course, his sleep efficiency was about 95%. But he did have lots of awakenings. He dreamed a lot during the night. And that is one feature of narcolepsy. And these individuals have very vivid dreams, colorful dreams, 
The dreams oftentimes cause awakenings in the night. So they may be excessively sleepy during the day and then still not able to sleep at night. Absolutely. Another, another patient of mine, this is really fascinating because here's a patient with narcolepsy, with cataplexy, who's taking various medications to help him stay awake during the day. Well, he became depressed. Uh, he had a social issue, came up, and really came, became fairly severely depressed. Do you know what his chief complaint was? What? I can't sleep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he had, he had prolonged sleep latency in the night, difficulty initiating sleep, which was quite difficult for him to manage. So these folks are people just like you and me, and if they have pain or stress or things of, those, of, of that nature, then they may have difficulty initiating sleep. And each one of them is different, so they present in a lot of different ways. Well, and there's so many misconceptions about narcolepsy, I think, um, mainly uh, precipitated by Hollywood, that the typical Hollywood portrayal of a narcoleptic uh, kind of combines cataplexy and narcolepsy, so they just fall asleep instantaneously no matter where they are, uh, sometimes in ridiculous uh, situations. Is that really how it works? No, it isn't. It's interesting because the patients oftentimes with narcolepsy come into the practice and they actually tell me, you know, Doc, I don't have narcolepsy because I don't just fall asleep. What I tell them is that the brain actually clearly has circuits that keep us awake. And when we're highly motivated or when we're frightened or threatened, we're not likely to fall asleep. You're not likely to fall asleep when you're having fun. So when these individuals are motivated... They can stay awake. It's just when they're doing these routine things. Now, the threshold may vary from one person to the other, but if you're engaged in a conversation uh, over the telephone or reading or driving or this, this sort of nature, then these individuals have a propensity to get sleepy, and they may actually nod off. And so they, they don't just sort of suddenly fall asleep. What you're describing, obviously, is cataplexy, and cataplexy is actually not falling asleep. When it's an narcolepsy patient has cataplexy, they actually are still awake. They can actually hear what's going on. They're just paralyzed. So they have this sort of drop attack fall to the floor, but they're awake. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, and, and that's as you say, most people have assumed that they were asleep because, quite frankly, they look asleep because they're not moving. And not all narcolepsy patients have cataplexy. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Rick Bogan. We are discussing narcolepsy. Now, Rick, when does narcolepsy usually become a problem for patients where they actually come in complaining of these symptoms? You know, Leslie, that's a very important question because the onset of symptoms is at its highest point in the teenage years, but most patients don't come to us for 15 or 20 years on the average before they're diagnosed. Now, that number is actually getting shorter but the published literature is typically 15 to 20 years. They live with sleepiness, and oftentimes their diagnosis is missed um, because oftentimes they're teenagers, and teenagers are sleepy. They have <laughs> unusual behaviors, and, and so we can usually explain why we're sleepy. These individuals grow up being sleepy, and they don't ever realize that life could be any different. Now, what have we learned about the genetics of narcolepsy? Well, it's really interesting because... The concept behind the pathophysiology of this disorder is that these individuals are not making enough of a neurotransmitter that modulates wakefulness. So the brain wants to be awake or it wants to be asleep. And during the awake period, when all these neurochemicals are reinforcing wakefulness, there's a certain one that's modulating that. And we think narcolepsy patients lose that particular neurochemical. It's called hypocretin. If you have a certain genetic propensity, an HLA phenotype, 
then we think that the current best theory, at least, and still not completely proven, but the current best theory is that if you have this genetic propensity for this, then some trigger may allow you to lose your hypocretin, and that trigger may be a simple cold or the flu or mono. or So it may really be a, some sort of autoimmune response that knocks out these hypocretin neurons, and if these hypocretin neurons are not there to help modulate wakefulness, then you disinhibit the sleep circuits, and when you disinhibit the sleep circuits, then you get this example of what sleepiness is. And not only is it sleepiness, but it's all those other symptoms we talked about earlier. So is there a role for HLA testing in narcolepsy? Well, you know, yes and no. This is the problem. (laughs) Because the HLA phenotype associated with narcolepsy, 25% of the general population are HLA positive for this particular phenotype. So you could have this phenotype and 25% of the population has it and they don't have narcolepsy. Now, of the patients with narcolepsy with cataplexy, who have this particular HLA phenotype, 90% of them are HLA positive. Of the group that does not have cataplexy, but they clearly have narcolepsy, it's about 60%. Mm. So it's not a 100% study. In fact, you may have false positives. So we actually rarely do HLA phenotype. Now, what should a primary care doc do if they suspect a patient has narcolepsy? Well, I think embedded in the primary care practice are all these patients with fatigue and sleepiness. And if we can quantify the degree of sleepiness, and there's a very simple scale, the Epworth Sleepiness Scale, which we have used for years as a validated scale. So when they have someone who is sleepy, and if they take, have the patient fill out that questionnaire, and I know it's another questionnaire, (laughs) but if you select individuals to help you quantify this, these individuals are typically going to have a high score. So they're going to be north of, say, 14 out of 24, where a normal person would be less than 10. Typically, narcolepsy patients are up around 18, 19, or 20. And then one simple question, do you dream a lot? So here you have a sleepy person who dreams a lot, and that should really trigger something that, wow, this patient may have narcolepsy. Well, I have to give a plug for the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. We started giving it several years ago to all of our patients as a screening and lo and behold, had two narcoleptics living in our practice that we never knew about. So you really do see these people when you start looking for them. Absolutely. And you know, it's until you start treating that sleepiness, it's hard to get a lot of those other symptoms to resolve. Yeah, exactly. Now, in the last few minutes, um, just briefly run us through the treatment options for narcolepsy. Since narcolepsy represents difficulty modulating the awake circuits, then typically we're going to use medications that will turn up the awake circuits. So we've used catecholamine-like products or dopamine agonist-type products, and those certainly would include methylphenidate and the amphetamines. Now we have another sort of modulating compound, which is modafinil, and modafinil certainly modulates these awake circuits and now probably is the drug of choice in treating these individuals. It has a long half-life and much less autonomic effect so much less blood pressure and heart rate effect and tremor and this sort of thing, and works fairly well. Interestingly, we have another compound called sodium oxidate. Sodium oxidate you give at night because in narcolepsy, neither state is stable, neither wakefulness or sleep. It's almost like the brain's oscillating between wake and sleep and wake and sleep. So narcolepsy patients have little nap periods during the day. They dream, and they have lots of awakenings in the night. And sodium oxidate has now been approved by the FDA to treat the sleepiness of narcolepsy, and the cataplexy of narcolepsy, and you give it at night. Basically, then, we have three options, stimulants, modafinil, and sodium oxabate? I think an important message about narcolepsy is, again, state instability. 
and that's what makes it so fascinating to help us understand the neurochemical regulation of wakefulness and sleep and guides us into specific directions to approach these individuals. So narcolepsy's taught us a lot about the impact on quality of life of sleepiness. How does it affect us in terms of our functionality, memory, uh, productivity, fatigue-related accidents, and how can we approach treating these individuals, and, and can we extrapolate any of that over, obviously, into other domains where individuals have excessive sleepiness? So it certainly has taught us a lot. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Rick Bogan. We have been discussing narcolepsy. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments. Please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 